Well, we set aside once a year, a weekend for a completely unscripted set of three services where we give you the opportunity to ask whatever question you might have about the Bible, about the Christian life, about God, about how to apply the Bible, whatever it might be. And we've got uh, guys roaming around here with microphones, and all we ask is that you grab a microphone. We'd love to have you stand up and ask your question about the Bible or the Christian life, and we'll see and pray and hope it's edifying and encouraging and insightful. Let's pray for that. All right, we're going to start right here in the front, I guess. Alex? So one of the questions I have is um, when it comes down to, um, like, not trying to be annoying, but, like, wanting to help a brother understand that when they're in sin, like, like how, when is the time that we should stop telling them, like, because they're at, like, the Bible talks, like, you know, warn them once, warn them twice with, like, a witness, and if they keep on doing it, stop. But even though they say they're saved, but when they're acting in very, very, very unbiblical views, when should we, like, basically say, okay, it's in the Lord's hands, we should give up? Like, what's the time that we should basically say, we leave it up to you? Okay. Well, I'll take your question at face value that it's very, very, very unbiblical, whatever it is that they're doing. And uh, I would say it doesn't take long to make it very clear, whether it's two or three times where you've had the conversation where we're clearly not on the same page here. And uh, if it's someone in the church that you go to, you need to go up the chain, as we see in Scripture, Matthew 18, to go and uh, take someone else with you. And the whole point of it, let's just get to the point of it, is to try and rectify the problem. We want to see people that are in sin, that are going down a path where they're going to reap what they sow. For out of love for them and honor of Christ, we want to fix the problem and uh, so th- just keep the goal in mind. And that's when we, if they're in the church, we keep them um, in a place where we get someone else involved in this. And then we go all the way up to someone who's on staff, a pastor. And uh, it may be that we need to exclude them from the fellowship if it's very, very unbiblical, as you say. Now, if it's not someone in the church, well, then the Bible's pretty clear about people in First Corinthians that are not uh, doing what is right. They're violating God's truth. Uh, we don't even have a meal with such a person because it's clear that we're, we, you are claiming Christ, but you are not following Christ. And we're not just talking about, you know, you've missed a couple days on your daily Bible reading. We're talking about something that's a clear violation of God's truth. So I hope that helps. Got a microphone right here or wherever the microphone is. Just wave at me. Here it is. Hey, Pastor Mike. Hey. Uh, had a question regarding uh, AI and uh, machine learning uh, as it pertains to um, our world today, and uh, whether or not you believe that uh, as a society we're playing with fire. And second part to that was I heard a story regarding AI church and um, where machine learning would create sermons and, and you know people would listen to it. And obviously that horrified me, but uh, I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on that and also if maybe AI does have a role in ministry. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. Let me start with the middle question. Um, in in terms of how technology can ruin something biblical, like yeah, trying to uh, turn church over or sermons over to AI would be a good example of that. Here's a book title for you if you've not read this one: uh, Tech Techwise Family. Techwise Family. It's just really going to be challenging read because it's 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 very convicting, but. Um, we could all use the advantage of flourishing as human beings by uh, distancing from technology in many ways in our lives. With that said, it's a tool. It's a tool that can be utilized for good. Uh, let me start with your third. Let me go next to your third question. I do think there's a role for it. Um, for instance, the partners manual that I wrote, the discipleship manual, had a, a gal call me from some state. Um, we'd had I'd spoken at their church before. She wanted to get our um, partners program in a language we hadn't yet translated it into. She pumped parts of it into whatever the dialect was in Asia, and it came back. She had two people that were native speakers that read the whole thing and said they, they had, like, no correction, like two minor, like, small corrections. If you can do that with, with AI, I mean, that, that's amazing. It takes so long for us to translate things into other languages, and uh, artificial intelligence can certainly aid us in that regard. Um, there's so many, there, a lot of pastors 
struggle to have their sermons, if, if it's worth repeating, uh, to have them put into some kind of prose, some kinds of written manuscript that makes sense. AI can be the bridge between a uh, transcribed sermon, which I, I think is, we, we do a bunch of ours, if not all of ours, for whatever reasons, uh, but to have that turned into something that is read for edification, that reads like it was written, I mean, there are certainly roles for it. You can see how a tool can be useful for biblical and godly ends. But now to your first question, do I think we're playing with fire? Yes, of course. All you have to do is dig down a few layers with seeing what AI can do. And, you know, a lot of smart people are saying, you know, this is something that can end up being, you know, catastrophic for us. Now, catastrophic, I'm not doing H.G. Wells kind of, I mean, although there are scenarios clearly that you can logically forecast that uh, AI can become uh, a real problem. But to have a view of the science fiction, the reason I'm trying to distance from some views that you might have of, you know, Transformers or whatever, where you have, uh, I've only seen part of one, and that barely paying attention with one eye while eating pizza. But um, the point is, who we are, made in the image of God, which of course is a decreasing view. It used to be the dominant view that everyone understood themselves as more than material. They weren't naturalists. But we have people now um, that think somehow as naturalists, we can do something with artificial intelligence that can actually bring these things to life in a, in a way that reasons like human beings, and therefore it becomes, it takes on characteristics or attributes of humanity, which of course it, it doesn't. We believe there's something unique about who we are. We're not just software that somehow encodes intelligence on, on the synapses of our brain, and you know we can do that some way with artificial intelligence. Um, all I'm telling you is that we are going to be unique, although a powerful tool in artificial intelligence to create real problems for humanity? I think, yeah. So to answer the first question, yes, I do think if we're playing with fire, if it's just an unbridled, let's just release all of this. Um, and, and that's why I think a lot of smart people have said we need to slow down on all this. Um, but the middle question, we as a uh, church and as families and as individuals, I think we need to think about the role of technology. Streaming, right? Streaming can be useful and, and people can, can be traveling and, and connect with their home church on a weekend and keep track of a series through Acts. But, you know, if it becomes church for people, it's wrong. Shouldn't do that, right? Until technology becomes a barrier. And, and AI can also become a barrier, right? I mean, pastors that should be sitting and studying and doing the hard work of preparing sermons can rely on AI to do a lot of the work for them. And it's never going to be the kind of, of sermon that it ought to be. So, you know, we need to not, and this is why TechWise Family came to mind, that book that shows how we soften our, our uh, capacities by leaning on AI and on uh, technology, and even our kids suffer immensely by just being handing, uh, handed a screen and, you know, being slackjaw for an hour, and, and, and that's what we do just because we're busy. Um, so that, that book will challenge you for sure, and uh, so, yes... Um, yes, and what was your third question? What it? Yes, and yes. Yes, yes, yes. All right, over here. So growing up, uh, my uh, Presbyterian grandmother would talk about the relatives in the churchyard and would describe, when she would talk about the book of Revelation, she would describe them as all being in the grave still waiting, like grandma and grandpa are together still there. And then so in the Bible, um, on the crucifixion day, Christ is talking to the criminal on the cross and says, you'll be with me in paradise that night. So I guess, you know, it's an overly simplified question. Are we in the ground or are we already in heaven with him after we go? Right. Um, Right. Who you are, when you say we, are we or am I in the ground, uh, here's the difficulty of that question, even though the answer is, I'm not in the ground. And that's the short answer. Uh, the, the, the more difficult answer is the fact that we, as human beings designed to be enmeshed in a body, are, are not fully who we're supposed to be without our body. And certainly, everything from the beginning of Genesis all the way through Revelation, death is defined as the spirit leaving the body. I mean, that's, that's how it's described. When Rachel's dying, her spirit left her, she died. That, that's, that's death. When Jesus turned his spirit over to his father, he died. This is how death is defined. That is a definition of death biblically. Uh, so 
you end up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as Paul says, he's naked, right? You're, you're without your earthly tent, you're naked. But you're longing to be clothed with your eternal dwelling. So you will not quite be who you are designed to be till you get back in a body. Uh, the, the reason we have problems with this, and, and some people believe in soul sleep, that the soul is embedded in the body and the body's in the ground and it won't, that person's not there. They're looking at passages like Daniel 12, which speaks about many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will arise. Um, well, that's true, and you can talk about the many, meaning like they are in the ground. Their bodies are in the ground. We talk about death. We talk about euphemistic terms like uh, sleep, right? And, and, and I, I get that. But when the Bible gets to, and this is progressive revelation, gets to such clarity in the New Testament that not only is the spirit leaving the body, the definition of death, but the conscious awareness of life after I'm detached from my body is immediate, right? That's why Jesus told parables about the rich man and Lazarus. They were conscious and aware and, 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 and interacting after the departure of their body. But they're not complete, in their resurrected state, the way God designed it in Genesis, and that is making someone from the dust of the ground, breathing in them the breath of life, and they become a living being. Right? It's not that we're not living, but we're not living, living. Right? We're not, we're not living the way that we want to be living. And I should say that when I did that, because I mean, we are alive, of course. We're conscious. We're sentient. We're all of that. But we're not embedded in a body the way we were designed to have the experiences that we're, we're going to eventually have. So we wait for the resurrection, for the completion of God's redemptive plan, and the redemptive plan awaits the redemption of the body. And yet you will be conscious the minute you leave your body. Uh, you'll be conscious and aware. Uh, but much like you, you do, you go places in your dreams, and this is not a great analogy, it breaks down, but, you know, you, you don't take your body with you. <laughs> uh, and you're, you're not really going anywhere, but your mind is idling, and you have that sense of, of stuff and reality. But, but the reality is that the tactile material reality is you won't have that experience again until the resurrection. Now, some people have different views. If you read Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, if some of you read that, uh, you know, he, he makes a case for a temporary body. You get some kind of temporary body. And he, he uses the, the, the language of the book of Revelation uh, and, and saying, you know, they're, they're in robes and they're clothed. Well, the descriptions, I would say that's phenomenological language. It's, it's, a, it's giving us a sense of understanding things in the heavenly realm but we're not supposed to think, okay, well, I guess they're talked about as though they're, they have bodies, so they must have real tangible bodies. When the rest of the Scripture is very clear, we don't get our body back until the resurrection. So, no. Uh, some people speak that way, and they don't mean it. And depending on what Presbyterian they are, I would think they don't mean that. Presbyterian theology does not teach that. But there are groups that teach that. A lot of groups teach soul sleep. And that means that you are not going to be conscious or aware until your body rises. Uh, and that's just that's I, that's something I argue against in my book. Ten mistakes people make about heaven, hell, and the afterlife. I have a section in there about soul sleep, and a chapter on death early on, chapter three, I think. Um, but anyway, great question. Yeah. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. So in uh, HFG, we had a discussion regarding the millennial kingdom, and I was mentioning that uh, there will be the feast of booths being celebrated and. Um, and then someone came to me and said, well, why are they practicing the sacrifices if Christ is already there? And I said, well, for memorial reasons? <laughs> I don't yeah. think I was given such a good reception to that answer. Right, and they don't, like, yeah, they don't like that because in part, this is one of the things that they throw out there to say, well, there is no physical millennial kingdom because if you take the promises of Ezekiel seriously, well, then there have to be sacrifices in the millennium. And so we don't believe that. So all millennialists make that case, and they make it based on the fact that it would seem regressive to go back to sacrifices. Um, well, I'm stuck. In my mind, I'm a convinced premillennialist, and I think that there is a physical millennial kingdom, and I think Ezekiel describes it, and I think there will be a temple, and I think there will be sacrifices. You could say, like the communion meal, and that's kind of the oversimplified answer that you gave, and it's not wrong entirely. There is a sense in which the death of a lamb on a, on a sacrificial altar is a reminder from our perspective in the millennial kingdom, back to the crucifixion of Christ, just like the bread and the cup does the same for us now. Uh, but there's more to it if you read those chapters carefully. Uh, there's more to it in terms of an actual uh, fixing of the laws of uncleanness that the Levites are supposed to follow. And in that regard, I guess to get more technical on the answer, you have to say, yes, there is a um, ceremonial uh, cleanness that is uh, established by the act which is not metaphysical in my theology, but it's practical. God asks you to do this. 
And uh, you're not right with the community until you do this under the Levitical legislation. And, and I say that because if I don't say that, and the reason I'm a premillennialist and the reason I think that we have to, to deal with this issue of the, of the kingdom sacrifices is because if I don't, the easy answer would go, oh, I don't want any of that. Let's just, just say it doesn't happen. Okay, I got so many promises in the Old Testament that I just cannot square with anything in, in, in the present reality. And if you're an all-mill guy here and you believe that, I know there's answers that, that you, you present, but I'm unconvinced. I've, I've tried to sit through, and I have, 900-level hermeneutics classes by all millennialists, and I'm just not convinced that somehow I can take these promises in Zechariah and, and Ezekiel and Isaiah and say, yeah, in Jeremiah, these are all fulfilled now. I don't think they are. I think you're treating the text in, in a way that divorces the, 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 the power of the words of the text to have a real fulfillment. And they will say, well, we don't take everything literally. I understand that. That's why we like to say we're, we believe in a, in a historical, grammatical, normal interpretation. I, uh, uh, they'll say, well, you believe in a literal. I do believe in literal interpretation whenever the, the genre lends to literal interpretation. And I do think there's no way around. There's a literal description of sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. And there are priests, and David the prince is sitting there ruling in Jerusalem uh, as, as a prince under the king who's Jesus at that point, uh, physically with toenails and fingernails. So um, all of that, I, I have to say, yeah, well, that has to fit somewhere in this. How does it fit? Well, they're, they're just like you would say, nothing metaphysical is happening. When Jesus told the guy he healed with leprosy, go show yourself to the priest, take the sacrifices you're supposed to take. Now, he said that because we were still under the Old Testament law at that time. Jesus was still enforcing ceremony Levitical law. And if you think about that, you think, okay, but what happened? Is that when he got right with God? No, that's when he got right with the community. And I'm thinking the same thing's happening in the Levitical structure of the Ezekiel temple. And it's so specific, right? If, if that's not a literal temple, all that's described there, I'm just, now I'm lost and I'm going to struggle interpreting a lot of scripture. There's dimension, there's cubics, and it's this much and this high and this, this feature. It's just too specific for me to go, eh. And if you're all male, great, we're brothers in Christ. I get all that, but, but I'm not. And I'm a convinced premillennialist, and I believe there will be sacrifices in the kingdom. And I think it will connect people with the community, even though there's not a metaphysical thing that happens because they do the sacrifices. Yeah, but it will be a memorial. And I do think your answer was right. It's just the surface of it. And there's a deeper level to it, because if you read every verse of it, you start to get stuck with, oh, wow, that means something. There's cleanness that is established when you do these things in the back. Do you think it's okay for Christians to do yoga? Yeah, now here's the, here's the problem with that question. Um, not that you're a problem for asking it. You just created a problem for me. Um, there's no doubt that the roots of yoga, you could say, that's not the worldview I affirm, that's not the worldview that I'm a part of, I do not want to, to, I do not want to connect with the meanings that were initially established for all of this that's going on here, and, 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 and you can say, um, you say, I don't want anything to do with that, but I want to do yoga. Um, <clears throat> like a lot of things, when the connections are, are strong, which like Paul would say, idols are nothing. There is no God but God, right? And yet there are many gods and many lords. But for us, there's only one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. That, that, there's a give and take in that passage with the meat sacrifices to idols in that there is no God. There's nothing in this. You can put your body in any shape you want if you're willing to put up with the pains you'll have the next day. Uh, and, and you can call them whatever you want, and they can be, they can be in Sanskrit if you want, um, and, and really it's nothing. Uh, but the connection, right, is, um, is legitimate. There's a lineage of the, of the history and the meaning of those things. Now, here's the problem I always have. Clearly, I haven't been in a yoga class, and um, I always say, to someone, it would really depend in my mind, like what's going on in the class. Because if we do start to put the, the over layers of, of the kind of meditation and definitions of meditation that they've got there, 
right? Uh, then, then I'm going to say, yeah, you're going to, I, I wouldn't let my daughter or whatever, my, my family, no, you can't do that. Um, and then people say, well, I just check out on that point, or I just think biblically, or I just do the right thing. Uh, I, 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 could you, that's possible. But at some point, you're involved in something, I'm thinking, just take a Zumba class or whatever they have that's still around. Do something else. So it's not a simple answer for me. And, and oftentimes, when you get into the morass of people involved in something that's got connections that I would say, theologically, I can't even, uh, I, can't, I can't affirm Right? But then you say, well, does that mean I can't, even, I can't even participate in any way in it? I'm going to say, well, that gets fuzzy and muddy for me. Uh, and oftentimes when something is fuzzy and muddy for me, that's when I just take the whole thing, at least for myself, and say, I'm just not interested in it. Let's just be done with that. And let's just figure out something else. So for me, practically, I would say in my immediate you know, circle, right? I'm a pastor, obviously, to the church, but I'm not willing to say you should not do yoga, that's a sin. I'm not going to say that. But I am going to say... I, I would question, based on what's going on in there, if there is anything that would take you back to the meanings and definitions and the practices that uh, obviously are incompatible with Christianity. You want the hardcore view? You can read people online that are going to talk about, you know, there's no possible way a Christian should ever do this. Um, I, I'm not going to go that far, but I am going to say, uh, but, but then again, that's from ignorance because I don't know what's being said in there. And, and they won't let me just get in the room and watch. So uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Um, and, and all I can do is say, I know historically the underpinnings, the philosophy behind it, the spiritualism behind it. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be interested in that. You know, but you could look at Taekwondo and karate and a lot of other martial arts, and you could start making some of the same arguments. Well, it depends on what we're, we're doing there. My kid is, is being told to do things that are incompatible with Christianity, if, if he's having to opt out of it, at some point that becomes too compelling. It, be, it compounds into a place where this is too hard. Let's just do something else. Let's play baseball. Um, so, and, and I guess that's why it's a muddy thing. Uh, that's an unsatisfying answer. But at least you know where I'm at on that. Okay, yeah. I just wanted to say, first off, I'm very grateful to God for... Compass Bible Church for you and everyone who serves and the ministries and partners as well as uh, 25 years of Focal Point. I just started listening a week ago, so I have a lot to catch up on. Um, my question um, is, I have an upcoming meeting with one of my friends who wants to know about prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, and He's looking also for evidence of Old Testament or New Testament prophecies that we can point to that are like confirmed, like we can be like, okay, this is like proof that this happened or whatever. Um, I brought up the Mount Ararat in Turkey, uh, but he gave me some articles that went into the science about Noah's Ark, and they basically were using like science to try and prove Noah's Ark wrong. Uh, we know everything is possible with God, so... I guess my other question would be, how would you like combat that part? Because um, they were going into like geographical or like diseases or something. But, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, I definitely wouldn't start with the Shroud of Turin or you know Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat because there's just too much inconclusive discussion about all those things. Prophecy, right? The great thing about the Old Testament is it started to be written in 1440 B.C. and ended in 430 B.C. So you've got, you know, a thousand years from the time God used Moses to start writing the Old Testament through Malachi. And we see some of the early promises coming true in history. Now, again, someone can claim, like your skeptical friend, can say, well, that was probably all just written later, and that's why things that were written in 1440 B.C., they were fulfilled in, in 1000 B.C. or 600 B.C. or 400 B.C., but he'd be wrong, and I think you could probably establish objectively if you were willing to look at the evidence and say, okay, clearly these things were not written after the fulfillment. And you can look at what, and, and I'm just now thinking just within the 1445 to, three, to 430 B.C., so the Old Testament from Genesis to, to Malachi. Um, but I immediately think of like when when... Moses starts talking about one day Israel's going to come out, this nomadic group of people that left Egypt, and they're going to have a king, and they're going to disobey, and they're going to lose the rights to the land that they're about to go into, and they're going to go away into captivity. 
but they're going to pray to God, and God is going to bring them back into that land. Well, that, if you know Old Testament, of course, you know, in 586 BC, that's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, they get taken away for 70 years, discipline, mathematically based on how many Sabbath years they gave up and, and didn't keep, and then God brings, it's a, I mean, there's a good, solid beginning of, like, specific things that are going on in the prophecies of Moses that come true in in, in the playing out of the thousand years of written biblical history of the Old Testament. Now, that's the 39 books of the Old Testament. Uh, you've got the whole genre that you asked about, messianic prophecies. What about the things they say, starting with Moses, about there's going to come a prophet like me that's in the future that God is going to bring, and he's going to be the ultimate one. You better listen to him. And that's kind of nebulous and, and broad, but it's clear that there was always this pinnacle of Old Testament promises that there'd be one person that would fulfill every role, starting with Moses, prophet, all the way through to, 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 to the priests and the kings. And, and, and that person would be called the Messiah, the Mashiach. That, that's the, the Hebrew word for oil poured over your head, the anointed one. And that means that he's set apart as someone unique from the rest of the Israelites, the prophet, priest, and king, in this case, the ultimate Messiah. There's, there's a great book um, that and I just quote this one, or I would recommend this one because it's recently out, and it deals with all the objections that people have. Um, and, and that's done by uh, Michael Redelnik, uh, Moody Publishing. And it's called uh, Messianic, um, someone look it up. Messianic's in the, in the title. You'll find it uh, if you look that up. Messianic Dictionary, Encyclopedia, whatever. Uh, Messianic Prophecies. Great book, fat book. A lot of contributors, super helpful. You want something short and, and, and to the point, and though sometimes overstated, you can go to Sean and Josh McDowell's book, uh, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Got a whole section in there on Messianic prophecies. You want a long, extended, multi-volume set. Uh, Mike, Michael, um, oh, come on. Um, I want to say Pierce, Price, Michael, uh, come on, guys. Uh, objections, objections to, um, objections to Messianic prophecies. Uh, come on, big guy, big face. It's lost a lot of weight, skinny now. Uh, char- charismatic, um, Michael. Uh, what? Who? Michael Brown. Thank you. Look that one up. So that's like the multi-volume set. Objections. Someone look up the title. Uh, objections to. Answering objections to what? Answering Jewish objections to to Jesus. Answering So that's a multi-volume set. Uh, Michael Rodelnik's book, one volume, big, and Evidence that Demands a Verdict, uh, one section, one chapter, maybe two chapters in, in the new Evidence that Demands a Verdict. All of those will look at Messianic prophecies. Now, Messianic prophecies, there's, there's a few kinds. There's a kind of Messianic prophecy that there's no way you could be the Messiah if you didn't hit this checkbox. Like, born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, right? He's going to be born in this village of Bethlehem, the city of David. Uh, there are others that are like, you could read Psalm 22 and say, well, there's a lot of allusions, and Jesus even quotes things that happen. But if that didn't happen, we wouldn't even know because it's not clearly about the one fulfillment person, the prophet, priest, and king. So uh, the problem with, with McDowell's book sometimes is it's just... We kind of crisscross those, and some skeptics kind of go, well, how is that a messianic prophecy? Part of it is the messianic connections are often made once the Messiah shows up and looks back. But there are plenty that look forward, like like when he's going to arrive, Daniel chapter 9, where he's going to be born, Micah chapter 5, you know, what he would accomplish, right? Moses clearly describing some of that, uh, Isaiah 53 describing his death, his resurrection. So um, stick with clear fulfillments of prophecy that have taken place in history and time. And uh, Messiah is like the best and, and greatest because there's just so many. So I hope that helps. And I hope that conversation goes well. Yes. Hi, Pastor Mark. Hi. Uh, I have a question on the new perspective of Paul, uh, N.T. Wright, and I haven't read that, but I keep coming across other books that reference that. So I was wondering if you could uh, just give me a brief synopsis of what it means, the new perspective on Paul. seems to me after 2,000 years, 
I, there's not a whole lot that's new, right. but at any rate, um, I'd like to know about that and whether or not it's, um, uh, you know, is it worthwhile reading it or is it just somebody trying to sell books? Yeah. No, N.T. Wright's not trying to sell books. Norm Wright is trying to, um, he's trying to present theology, Pauline theology. Um, it's not worth reading, and I would say as your pastor, don't, don't, don't read it. You should, if you want to go deep dive, you could talk to our teachers or professors at, at CBI. Uh, Dr. Goodrich, Dr. Kelly will talk to you about the new perspective on Paul. Uh, I'll give you a summary, okay? N.T. Wright and others, and there was a movement of three or four very influential authors that, that wanted to move away from what they saw as a, um, a legal forensic interpretation of, of justification that they thought was um, birthed in the, the Reformation and, uh, you know, 500 years ago that we, we started to think of this thing so uh, black and white, so, so, so legally, and, and all the t- language you hear here all the time, imputation of God's, of, of, of Christ's righteousness to us, that I made right because of that, that, that uh, personal faith in Christ. They don't like the courtroom analogies. They don't like, they, and, and to, to dismiss that, to move that away into something more communal, which I'll get to that in a minute, why, uh, they, they got to deal with Paul because nothing's more forensic and legal than the book of Romans, first you know, eight chapters. So um, they spend a lot of time looking at Paul and what Paul is writing and trying to um, try and show how really this is about the, uh, the badges, the, the expressions, the customs of, of Judaism, including uh, the Gentiles. But it, this is really not about this uh, repentance and, and faith in Christ and my uh, sin being taken and put on the cross and Christ's righteousness being imputed to me. And, and uh, salvation starts to get defined more in, in terms of the community. The community uh, that, that no longer is telling the Jews to stop with your circumcision and, and you trying to, to wear your uniform around. And, and it, here's, here's the upshot of it. All you have to do is read Norm Wright on other things. And Norm Wright's a brilliant man. Uh, there's no doubt about it. He's smart. But I don't agree with him. And there's two guys that, that kind of grew up in the same trajectory, just to kind of take a little uh, sidebar on this. Um, Don Carson, uh, D.A. Carson, and, and N.T. Wright. Norm Norm Wright and Don Carson, uh, they're completely opposite when it comes to these things, but they grew up in the same trajectory of scholarship in, in the age of, of, of New Testament studies. Um, read anything on, on Carson about the new perspective, and you'll be where I think you need to be, because he, he defends that. Piper does the same in, in his book on defending justification. I forget what it's called. Justification, look it up. Piper tries to attack that. That's more of a popularized book on it. Uh, Carson goes deeper with a conglomeration of a couple volumes on trying to deal with how Paul's perspective, as we understand it in Reformation and Augustinian language, is correct. Uh, but the point is this. If you read N.T. Wright on pastoral issues, which, of course, I have a great interest in that. Right? I'm, not, I'm not a New Testament research scholar. I'm a pastor. So I, I read his stuff on other things, and I think I can see why this is it all fits together for me. There's a squishier uh, theology, I think, at the core that he rigorously, scholastically tries to uphold, uh, but there's a squishier theology in his pastoral theology, right? A lot of it gets down to, you know, why aren't we helping more people? Why are we always looking at heaven? Why are you always trying to get people's souls saved? Why don't we just feed them? Why don't we clothe them? Now, it's not just feed them and clothe them, but you read the tenor of his writings, which is broad because he's a brilliant man. He's prolific. He writes a ton. Um, But he's always soft on the issues and moves us away from the concern, the evangelical, traditional missionary endeavor to save souls by having people trust in Christ and get their sins taken care of at the cross, right? It all softens all of that. The new perspective of Paul lightens all that up. Right? And Dr. Goodrich would be happy to talk to you endlessly about the details of it all, but that is a, a, uh, a five-minute Q&A summary of the problem. And it is a problem to me. No, you don't, shouldn't read it, I would, you know, unless you're writing a paper or something. Yes? Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. Um, my question is about um, 
Cremation. Should Christians be cremated? Yeah. Should is a strong word. Um, I, 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 would, I would say, I don't want you to be cremated, right? And it gets back to our first question. But it's not you. That's where when you get such a dichotomized view that's just my body, it doesn't matter, right? I'm gone. I'm going to get a new one, right? But let's just remember, the new one is always corresponding to the old one. Right? Christ was raised from the dead, the old body that was put in the, in the grave that was putrefying after, you know, from Friday to Sunday, uh, wasn't there anymore. God took what was left and transformed it. As Paul says in, in uh, Philippians, we're going to have that, our lowly bodies transformed by his power to be like his glorious body. So my body that goes in the grave, and I bought a plot at El Toro, Carlin dies first, she's on the, on the bottom, uh, we're saving a little bit of money here. Uh, I'm sure she'll be on the top, but here's how this all works. I want my body set aside respectfully in Lake Forest or wherever that is um, until the resurrection because that's the pattern of the Bible because there's a one-to-one correspondence between the body that goes in the grave and the body that comes out of the grave. Um, before I depart from the pattern of Scripture, I, would, I should have a good reason. Note the rise of cremation in Western culture in Europe came with the, the disdain for Christianity, all this talk of what N.T. Wright softened, afterlife, getting right with God, hell, heaven, all that. They didn't like that. And, and uh, this is a generalization, but there's plenty of books on this. And we saw a rise in people wanting to be cremated. Now, today, a lot of people don't think about it. They just think, oh, it's cheaper than burial. Let's just do that. It's kind of creepy to think about my body in El, El Toro Cemetery. So, you know, I don't want to do it. Uh, just cremate me. You do, the body is a sacred receptacle of your spirit. It stands here right now looking at me. I'm looking into your eyes. Your spirit's in, in animating your body. That body should be treated with respect when you die, right? Your family should not say, it doesn't matter what happens to her. And so I just take your body and, and send it to Riverside with some rave and they, just, they can desecrate your body however they want. Or no one's going to just roll it in the trash can to the curb we, because it was your body. You animated that body. That body was part of your humanity. So we want to set it aside respectfully and wait for the resurrection. That's called burial. Put it in a crypt. Put it in a tomb. Put it in the ground. Put it somewhere respectfully. The pattern is trying to preserve it. When they came out of Egypt, they want to make sure that the body, right, of the patriarchs came back to Canaan. The bodies were important. Burning was seen as a sign of God's judgment. When Jezebel died and the dogs ate her up and all was left her hands and her feet, they said, look at that. We can't even bury her. This is an act of God's judgment. So I'm just saying, the only time you'll see the community of those followers of God in the Old Testament burning a body was the burning of Saul's body after it had been decaying on, on stakes at Bethshon, at the walls of Bethshon, and they took it and, and burned it. I don't think that, that's the only time you see it, and it's not because, hey, we're into cremation now. It's the exception because of the torrid state that that, that corpse must have been in at that point. But then again, they took the bones, and they risked their lives to bring it back to Jerusalem. So... Yes, I would want you to be buried, um, and, but I'm not here, and I've done Q&As for years now, and, and I, I've had people leave the church over my answer. Please don't leave the church, right, because you just had your mom cremated or something, but would you not at least respect, even if you have, what's, what's left, and, and I would say to even intern those ashes if that's what you've done, right, buy a little, uh, a wall crypt at, at, at the cemetery and have a place where there, there is this sense of setting aside what's left for the resurrection. That'd be my recommendation. And you go, ching, ching, ching. He must have all kinds of money. Here's the deal. I, I just think this is, the, this is important. People are going taking European vacations and dropping a lot of dough. And I'm just thinking, we can spend a little money out of respect for the body. And so, you know, I, I'm not into spreading ashes in the mountains or, you know, he loved to surf here. Let's just do it at San Onofre. I don't think that's what we should be doing. That patterns the rise of people saying, I don't want my body. I don't want to think about anything after life. I don't, I'm done. The life is over. Um, just check that out. If we're not talking about Hinduism, which even in Hinduism, uh, we could look at their theology on that and see why I don't want to copy that either. Uh, if you want a chapter on this, uh, I wrote a book, 10 Mistakes. The 10th chapter is all about rethinking whether or not we should be cremated or buried. And uh, I, I do think, um, funny, I brought up Dr. Michael Redelnik. He read that book, um, just happened to tell me, 
And he changed his view after reading that book. Big Old Testament scholar guy. So that felt good because I do think most people haven't thought about it. And, and I had a conversation with a guy this week about this issue over lunch. And he texted me and said, I changed my will after our conversation. I'm not, I'm not in the funeral industry. I'm not making any money on this. But I do think to follow the pattern of Christ and the scriptures is a wise thing to do. And you better have a really good reason not to. And I know all that you're going to come up to me after. But what about? And this happened, burning in a car accident. I understand all that. Just like, just like Saul's body had to be treated differently than, than Abraham's body because he was a victim of war. They cut his head off and they hung his body on a wall. I get it. There are exceptions. But I think the pattern ought to be, let's try to bury our loved one's bodies. We set it aside and await the resurrection. Are you saying God can't? I'm not saying that. God can. God can do whatever, but I don't destroy it so that he can prove that he's powerful to, to recreate. And if money's an issue, right, uh, we can save up for it. We can do what I've tried to do, like plan ahead to where it's cheaper now than later. And, um, or we can pool together our funds and, and help, help bury your body. And you understand what I'm I can't say it's a sin. You understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying, because I can't open a chapter and verse, but I'm saying the biblical logic, I'm just appealing to you. So I should, I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm saying I, I would appeal to you to, to rethink. Maybe you should. All right. Where are we here? Front row. Hi. Um, I, I agree with you back there. That this, You guys are very lucky to be at this church. You guys are very blessed, too. Uh, we came from Arizona, and I've been listening to Pastor Mike for like 10 years, and he's, he's awesome. Um, so <laughs> he is. Yeah. Um, I told you to go a little bit longer with that part, but go ahead. <laughs> Well, he's awesome. Uh, we no, really... stop, stop, please. <laughs> ask, ask your question. Okay, so um, I've been struggling with this um, where it, like in Job 1, uh, 6, it says, you know, it says that Satan and the, the um, heavenly court came in front of God and present, you know, presented themselves. And that's when, you know, he was asking about, Job and God was talking back to him, but yet, you know, in Exodus thirty three twenty and Isaiah six six, it talks about how God is so holy that, you know, if you're unclean or sinful and whatever, that basically you're you're going to die. So, I don't understand how Satan, who's basically the epitome of evil, you know, can stand in front of and present himself in front of God. Uh, let me answer it this way. Um, you're a sinner. Am I right? Okay. And um, yet the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You're a Christian. Uh, you're a sinner. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. He's the Holy Spirit. How in the world does that work? Right? How can the Holy Spirit be in you? Okay? The whole point is, of God's omnipresence, is that the Holy God of the universe has equal perception and powerful presence in every part of the universe, so much so that he upholds all things. Right? The second person of the Godhead is described as deity because he upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Right? Colossians chapter 1, what is it, 17. Right? In him, all things hold together. He's holding everything together. So every sinful crime that's taking place in the world right now, he is actively present there. How can that be? Okay. Well, it seems like sin... Right, can be in the presence of God. Okay. The Exodus laws of the Levitical, uh, which goes back to the question about the coming days, so these, are, these are ceremonies to show that God certainly should not right, be surrounded by sin. This is what should grieve us, that there's sin in this world that God is, is in the presence of. We should hate that. We should long for sanctification in our lives, we should long to see the world, as it says in Romans chapter 8, groaning and can't wait for the revealing of the sons of God. When the redemption of the body takes place, we're not going to sin anymore, and the world is going to be redone, as it's put in, in Acts 4, the time of restoration is going to come, everything is going to be made right, and we should long for no sin to be in his, in his presence. But right now, it's in his presence. And one of the things that God has apparently, not apparently, clearly indicated in Job 1 has done is allowed the arch enemy of his whole agenda to come and present himself before God. 
You quoted a passage we cannot get around. So what's the harmony between the Exodus? Well, the Exodus passage is about God deserves holiness. We should want cleanness in his presence. There wasn't one priest that was clean in his presence, only ceremonially clean, right? There wasn't a single, I mean, Zechariah, godly man in, in, in Luke chapter 1. And he goes into to the, holy of, uh, the holy place to, to offer the, the incense. And uh, angel shows up, tells him something. He doesn't even believe it. You have a doubting heart. You don't believe God. You don't believe God's messenger. You're a sinner. Oh, but you did all the sacrifices. Oh, yeah. Those are ceremonial expressions of what God wants and what he deserves. But that's not what he has. Zachariah, a sinner who doesn't even believe what he says, is in his presence. And that's a presence that's even just symbolized by the fact that his focalized glory is in this temple in Jerusalem. Well, the whole world is right, his footstool, right? He's here, and yet he's in a room filled with sinners. And more than that, you're a Christian. So his spirit now is so intimate with you that he says he's within you, and yet you're a sinner. How can that be? Same way that Job can come into the pre- or Satan can come into the presence of God in Job chapter 1. Uh, one day it'll change, and one day it'll be excluded. And as it's put in Second Thessalonians 1, everyone who is sinful and everything that is sinful, or it says the same thing in, in Revelation 22, everything will be out, away from the presence of God and the glory of his power. But right now, Satan has access. As much as God wants to give him access, I don't know if he can interrupt whatever he's doing, right? He's not a temporal being. God isn't. But, you know, he allows it. He does it. And he's allowing you and me to be filled with the Spirit, even though you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. Yeah. I know it's hard for us to compute, but we're looking at principles of the Levitical law and thinking because God's demanding a, a right of cleanliness that God can't talk to Satan. Of course he can. He can also listen to your prayers and my prayers. He can even be involved in what's going on in L.A. or whatever's going on in some section of the world where sin is like, you know, exacerbated. Don't think of God as a, as a, as a uh, formula or some kind of, of, of equation, right? Well, this won't compute if this integer is in it. No, God, God, can, God can handle that. And uh, one day he's going to fix it. Genesis 3 to Revelation 19. This is the sinful period where God has to cohabit with sin. But one day it'll be done. And starting in chapter 20, things are going to be made right. Does that help? I would imagine that facing a Q&A question, you would probably want to have some questions and not have others. But my question is one of those that I hope you get. Okay. And that is, is there a theology that if most of us understood, or more of us understood, would benefit us the most? A theology? Yeah. Like uh, an, an aspect of theology? Yes. That would benefit us the most? I... Um, where one aspect of Christian theology is that God has called us to be humble, right? God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. For God's grace and favor to be strongly upon this church and, and our congregation, we need to be humble people. And that's not the nature of humanity. So I do think we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt us. And if I would say one thing that really connects to so many other things, it's humility. And I know you could look at the hierarchy of virtues and say love, and I I get all that. But if you don't have a humble perspective and get yourself in perspective, not think you're all that, right? Then you're going to criticize people. You're you're going to do whatever you want. You're going to demand everything conform to you. Uh, You're going to be opposed by God. So I don't know. Off the top of my head, I would say if there was one thing I could wave my magic wand and say, everyone now has this aspect of their Christian life figured out, they understand it, and they're doing it, I think we want to be a humble people, which doesn't mean we're quiet about the truth, doesn't mean we're not evangelistic, doesn't mean we're not convictional, doesn't mean we're not absolutely 100% dogged about certain things, but we're not ever doing it for ourselves, right? We're putting other people's interests before our own. That'd be my answer. Tomorrow might be different, but that's my answer tonight. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Mike, my wife and I made the decision to put our kids in Christian school. Uh, we had public, we had homeschooling, but we went with uh, Christian school, and we're thankful for the general Christian environment there, but there are lots of different kids from different churches there, and 
unchurched kids there. Uh, so it's pretty clear that we're among the most conservative theologically and morally there. Uh, first question is, do you have uh, advice for parents in our situation? Uh, second question is, I can think of no organization that could bring glory to God through education like Compass. Uh, do you ever see a future where Compass gets involved in K-12 through education? Yeah. Let me start with the first question. Um, totally get it. Here's part of the problem um, with uh, Christian education, though I'm 100% for it. To educate a Christian school, great. Um, but you know that the Christian schools, there's different philosophies of what that school is going to allow in their matriculation, right, in their student body. And a lot of people end up sending their kids to Christian school because they're having trouble in public school, behaviorally or whatever. So you never know what you might have in the student body. And uh, not to mention, now we're dealing with the most important topics like Christianity, soteriology, who God is, right? You run a risk of who knows what kind of theology you're going to get there. Um, so there's a, there's a risk. There's a risk, obviously, in sending you to public school, <laughs> right? So you never can relinquish your active participation in trying to learn what your kids are learning and respond to what they're learning by discipling your kids. That's going to happen whether you send them to the best-rated Christian school in Orange County or whether you are um, sending them to, to the public school that you think is still tolerable. Um, the uh, homeschool option, you're still, unless you're writing your own curriculum, uh, you're still delegating a part of that process to someone who's writing whatever the curriculum is, right? Their questions, the way they're worded, what they are, how they, you know, go about and see their worldview, whatever it is. So there's always some uh, delegation. And um, I take, it's a compliment for you to say what you've said and to say that you would trust the Compass uh, in terms of, of, you know, K through 12 education or whatever it might be. Um, that's great because that's part of it. You need to trust the organization if you're going to say, this kid's going to go off to school from eight o'clock till two o'clock or whatever. You've got to be able to say, I, I think good things are going on there. Um, have I ever considered it? Here's the, I, I swore off Christian schools many years ago when I started in, in the pastorate 30 some years ago, and, and I'm now eating my words because uh, I think about it almost every day because the, the landscape has changed in 35 years. And I, I at one point said, just, you know what? Someone else can do education of kids. We're here to preach the gospel, disciple, evangelize. And so, and I had a school when I started, I got my first pastorate that I was given, and um, we parted ways, because I, I couldn't even use the facility, it had more employees, it was just a mess. So we parted ways, which is, was good. Um, and I thought, great. And I kind of hung in that, like, yeah, there's Christian schools around here, they can do the Christian school thing, some of the public schools are still decent, things are getting worse and worse and worse, and uh, obviously I'm at the place now where I thought, okay... I'm, I, I could see this happening, but I would have to tell you up front, if I were, if it were happen, if, it, if Compass Academy were going to be launched, okay, um, it, it, would, it would probably be different than most Christian schools, uh, because I think what's needed today uh, is, is um, real education, and I don't mean classical, they got to learn Latin, I just mean we really just need to teach the kids reading, writing, and arithmetic with a kind of rigor uh, that, that, that can, can produce kids that can think. Uh, I think every kid should be involved in church heavily. The church is already doing, uh, there's a lot going on here. I, I, I would want to see, and I don't even know if this is legal, uh, but I would want to see, not that it matters too much, um, I would want to see uh, an a, a, a educational institution that is uh, available for the people that are a part of this church. Right? You're part of this church, you're a highly committed participant here, then your kids can enroll in this. This isn't like send your kids from wherever, you know, to hear the new, the new thing is the, is the Compass Academy. Send us to do that. They're at Stony Brook or they're at Capitol Valley. They're going to go here now. No. Um, it would be like this is a ministry of our church because if you can't homeschool or you don't want to homeschool or you, whatever, here, come here and do this. But it would be much more pared down than you might think. Uh, now, Here's the other problem, money. And I know people will, will give to this. Uh, I'm just not ready to, un, to, to, to unveil this because um, 
because I, I don't have the structure in place yet. But I will say this. Uh, it's not beyond my, my vision. Um, I, I really think, and I'm not just spitballing, I really think it would take $25 million to get this thing started. I want a facility, right? I, I want to be able to have a place that is functionally able to do this right. Uh, I want to be able to service the whole spectrum. Uh, and I want it to be a kind of education where people know my kids are really learning how to think. They're learning how to read. They're learning how to do math. They're learning STEM stuff. They're able to do what should be done without me trying to inject even a lot of theology or philosophy. I, I want them to learn. And that's the problem I see with education across the board. It, it, we're just not learn. Not much learning is going on. Uh, so, yeah. And, and, and I've been more open with, with you in this question than, than I ever have publicly. But uh, those that are close to me and our staff, they, they know it, it's increasingly a burden. We've bitten off a lot with church planning organization and a college. But whatever's next, if it happens before I go, then I would be pleased to leave behind when it's my time to be done um, an educational. I just don't want it to take over the mission of the church. It cannot be seen as a whole life thing. You don't send your kids to Compass Academy and think, that's it, right? No, no, no. You got to send them now to church. You got to send them to youth group. You got to send them to our kids' ministry. Uh, you, as a parent, have to be involved because this is not about just keeping your kids off drugs or learning the Bible. It's about doing what I don't think is being done very well, and that is I don't think there's a lot of great education going on because a lot of people have been protected and shielded from a lot of the secular stuff, but they can't do math. They, don't, they, don't, they haven't read a whole book from cover to cover, uh, and we just need to get back to some of those things. And it goes back to that, that TechWise family book, if, if you read, in part because we've dumbed down our kids by throwing a screen in front of them. And not that I'm anti-technology. Matter of fact, I'm not as far as the, as the author of the book. Um, but I, I, do, I do appreciate the fact that we are not, um, we're not, I don't, yeah. And again, that's not to knock the Christian schools in the area. I get it. But they're trying to serve a lot of people. I would not want to serve a lot of people. I'd want to serve our people. Because to me, it's an extension of the church. It's the ministry of the church. And, and that's a different approach to it. And I think we might run into some problems, but um, God can solve those problems. And, but I'd want a building. I'd want one of these buildings across the way. And those are expensive. And I'd want to re tool it for good educational experience. And then I'd have to staff it. And it would take some work. But if you've got 25000000 million, we'll talk afterwards. And we'll, <laughs> we can maybe get that, get that going. Don't be careful. If you encourage me in this. Okay, go ahead. If there is a school that teaches my kids how to think in the future, I'd, I'd be very interested in that. You guys, so, uh, oh, oh, in the future. Okay. In the future. I, yeah, my yeah, future yeah. kids. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you said you found one, and I'm thinking you guys should get together. I've yet to find one. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, right. uh, Pastor Mike, it's a simple question, I think, but, or maybe it's deceptively simple, but what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Yeah, yeah. Um, if you asked a, a Mormon or... Um, well, yeah, I shouldn't even start with that sentence because <laughs> there's such theology that's attached to Mormon theology and, and our creation. But um, the Imago Dei, or the, the fact that we are made in the image of God, is uh, not a statement about our, um, our, our features, our temporal features, uh, but about our, um, our attributes and our function. That we are uh, in our attributes as a as spirit beings, right? That that are enmeshed in in physical tactile bodies. That we reflect the capacities that are absent in the rest of creation, but reflect God's attributes, which are rational attributes, which need to be developed, obviously. Um, emotional, volitional attributes that reflect what we would say is personhood, right? You cut down a tree; it's a living thing, but we don't think about it as murder. Uh, well, unless you're crazy, uh, some some do, but um, it 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 doesn't reflect, and it's not just animation, right? You can have an, an animated animal, but it's not a human being. They're not they're not wearing clothes, they're not building hospitals, they're not writing poetry. Uh, they're they're not made in the image of God. Um, part of that image of God is reflected in the immediate commission in Genesis, right? Go exercise dominion over creation. Dominion's a a, a regal world word. You're in charge. You're going to take charge of the animals and the planet, and you are going to be its 
It's it's dominion overseer, the steward of it. Um, God is the steward of all things. He's the great God, greatly to be feared above all gods. He's in charge of all things. But now he says, you guys be in charge of stuff. And, And so the function of human beings starts to reflect God's character. So in the image of God, the template of God, might be a good way to say it, is that he's a functioning sovereign over things. He chooses and decides and directs things for others. And we are now endowed with that. And we are told to do the same. And we have capacities to do it. Reason and creativity and intelligence and, and, and reflection and reaction. And, and, and all of that helps us do what God does. And that's why even in raising children, you should help them exercise dominion. That's why they should clean their rooms. That's why they should pick up their toys and put them in the toy box. That's why they shouldn't play with their food. I mean, all the things that you're trying to get them to take charge and exercise uh, a function of leadership over parts of creation to make them useful and and to do right with them. Uh, That's a function of God. And so to say we're made in the image of God, it has to do with our attributes as persons that set us apart from the rest of creation, and it's the function that we're given. We're to master over things. Male and female, he made them in his image, so we, we are unique in that. And uh, I hope that answers your question. It's not that we're made, you know, and I thought of Mormons initially because, you know, they think we're made the way they are, he is. And it's funny because I was talking to somebody who graduated from the same Bible school as I did who argued with me about this. Like he, and, and it's obviously as a change in heart in his theology, but he says we are made in his physical image, and God is physical. And he started quoting passages to me which anthropomorphize God, of course, the hand of God and all the rest, but that is not what God has taught and revealed about himself in the scripture. He is spirit, John 4. He is not physical. We're not created in the physical image or template of God. We're made in the, 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 the template of God in terms of who we are uh, as spirit set apart from the rest of creation, intellect, emotion, and will, some would say, and uh, functionally as leaders. Yes. We got the last question here. Okay, last question. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. I'm curious what you think about the verse in Jude when it mentions Michael disputing the devil over the body of Moses. Yeah, it uh, goes back to our cremation question. Um, even that passage, and I don't know if I enlisted in the chapter I wrote or if the editors took it out, but um, even that passage makes no sense if the body doesn't matter. Moses is dead, okay? What does it matter, Right? Uh, it, it mattered to God because he dispatched Michael to go and dispute about it. Uh, and there's something unique about Moses. They didn't know where his body ended up. And so then you have this kind of peeling back of the curtain into the spiritual realm where you see Satan and, and, and Michael talking about it, disputing about it, arguing about it. Um, so God wanted it, and some have argued, uh, like Enoch, God wanted these two bodies, you know, already taken up, which would be an exception to the statement in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that Christ is the first of the glorified bodies because they have to be glorified if they're not here because you can't survive if you're not you know, breathing on earth here. Uh, so anyway, and if you're not glorified. So what happened to that? Uh, I don't know other than Michael was dispatched to, to, to get it to be and wherever God wanted it to be. Where that is, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm assuming buried, but I don't know. Um, but it does speak to the battle that, again, that's a mysterious question too because that's probably part of your, your curiosity. How do angels and, and demons battle each other? What is that about? And, and the most developed discussion of that, at least in the Old Testament, is the book of Daniel that describes... The, the, the princes over nations, we see in Ezekiel 28 as well, and Isaiah 14. But the, the, the spiritual realm is probably more involved in the physical realm than any of us dare to think. And, and I mean the physical realm, not in just the physical realm, but the political realm. And in the political realm, uh, it, it seems that there's enough discussion in the Scripture that there's these spiritual entities that work over these, spiritual, uh, these physical political leadership structures and uh, whether it's a team or a monarch uh, or a dictator or, or, or a president or, or, or senators, that, that, that Satan is battling out or demons battling out with angels as to how that all goes. That, I would assume, because they too are made in the image of God, though they're not described that way, but they have intellect, emotion, and will, they're, they're, they're working to dispute to get the things done through the agency of the, of the monarchial leaders or the, or the 
the administrative governing leaders. So how does that work? It's a battle of ideas somehow. In this weird passage, though, they're battling over the body. Well, there must have been some dispute in the sense that there's reasoning back and forth between Satan and Michael. Is there deal-making? I don't know. It's a curious passage, but uh, I couldn't help but think of the previous question. It makes no sense unless God cares about the lifeless body of a dead person, uh, which he does in that case because he's one of the most important dead people, dead bodies in, in, in the Old Testament, obviously, Moses. Friend of God, think about it. He's called a friend of God twice in the Bible. Moses is probably more important than most of us think, right? We know him as a key figure in the Old Testament, but God treated him very differently, all the way down to caring very much in a celestial realm as to how his body was dealt with. All right, stand with me and I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you. Because you need that after a potpourri of, of ideas and thoughts. Let me pray. God, we do ask that something here tonight would minister and help and encourage or motivate people. Every, every last person would be edified in some way. That's been my prayer leading into the weekend. I pray it would be uh, true in this service that everyone would, would sense uh, something that would either click or, or satisfy or drive them on or convict them. So work in the hearts of the people that are here. Encourage them. Just thanks for the time that we have and the, even the planning that's taken place sovereignly to just have this kind of, of free Uh, formed service, and I know it's happened a lot in church history in certain settings, and it's just great to be a part of, uh, of trying to tackle these questions and think through them together. So we appreciate it, God. Uh, dismiss this crowd now with a sense of your blessing. Just thank so much for our kids being able to play on that playground tonight, for uh, just getting that done. We're so grateful for it. Just let it be a great time of uh, even celebrations. We watch and uh, engage and, and get uh, a cookie and some coffee in Jesus' name. Amen.